If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Hello, what you are listening to now is a preview of the first episode of the Physical Attraction Book Club. Uh, I am borrowing a tactic that has been used by a lot of different podcasts to persuade people to subscribe to their Patreon uh, in terms of producing an extra bonus episode, and I'm going to play part of it for you here. If you want to listen to the rest of it, then you can support the show on Patreon uh, by going to patreon.com slash physicalattraction, where you will be able to uh, subscribe You'll pay a small fee, I think $5 for each bonus episode that comes out, and you'll be able to subscribe per episode so that you only pay when you get new content. Um, This is going to be the first in our book club series where we review books, and the book we're reviewing is The Attention Merchants by Tim Wu. So if you find it interesting and would like to hear the rest or would like to help support the show financially, then you can go to the Patreon and subscribe there. Okay, take care. Hello and welcome to the first edition of the Physical Attraction Book Club, something that I hope will become a more regular feature. Here I'll discuss what I've been reading, what I've been thinking about it, and hopefully in time we'll be able to see some books in advance and incorporate your discussion on them as well. The book we're starting with is The Attention Merchants by Tim Wu. This is essentially a history of advertising from the 1800s to about 2016 when the book was written. The framing here is that the question of advertising is about attention. A key mantra that runs through the book is William James, the philosopher who first wrote about attention in the 1800s. Here's how he defines attention. Quote, Everyone knows what attention is. It is the taking possession by the mind in clear and vivid form of one out of what seems several simultaneously possible objects or trains of thought. Focalisation, concentration of consciousness are its essence. It implies withdrawal from some things in order to deal effectively with others, and is a condition which has a real opposite in the confused, dazed, scatterbrained state which in French is called distraction. And Wu's argument, which is hard to disagree with, is that we're all bombarded with stimulus, all the time, not just sights, sounds, actions, but also potential thoughts and ideas, and that you can argue our lives simply amount to the sum total of the things we actually, actively, end up paying attention to. In this sense, we ought to be really careful when we consider the competing forces that are trying to capture our attention. We live in an attention economy. Facebook is a company theoretically worth $640 billion, and it makes 97% of that revenue from advertising. Google is worth over a trillion dollars, and its revenue is 88% advertising. By the rough metric of GDP, advertising alone accounts for about 2% of the entire US economy. In 2019, just on online adverts alone, we collectively spent around $300 billion, which is a similar order of magnitude to the entire global effort to fight climate change in any form. If you include investment in renewable energy, sustainable transport, energy efficiency, and adaptation to natural disasters, that sat at around 500 billion in 2019, according to the Climate Policy Initiative. So it's a similar order of magnitude to spend on online ads 
as anything that is even remotely related to climate change. Looking at it purely from a corporate point of view, private finance has easily spent more on online advertising than anything climate-related, even with renewable energy a profitable enterprise these days. Advertising accounts for a huge proportion of what we pay attention to and what we spend money on. In looking at advertising through history, Wu gives us a series of vignettes, stories about how certain inventions arose. Here we have in 1833 the establishment of the New York Sun, a newspaper which realised it could become cheaper than its competitors by selling advertising, and quickly descended into purveying 19th century clickbait, becoming filled with articles about murder and supposed sightings of aliens living on the moon. These were described as man-bats with wings that were doubtless, quote, happy creatures, notwithstanding that some of their amusements would ill comport with our terrestrial notion of decorum. Naturally, the business model of the paper demonstrates the value of using attention-grabbing content to support advertising business models, instead of relying on readers willingly being able to pay a premium for more upmarket and perhaps more accurate content. Of course, they need to only go to the weird section of the Daily Express to find they're churning out articles about a UFO that's just crash-landed in Brazil to get clicks. Some things never change. One of the more insidious tactics is demand engineering, selling people products that they didn't know they wanted. Initially, this was a pretty unsubtle pursuit. Claude Hopkins, who wrote the book Scientific Advertising in 1923, commented, quote, From our desks we sway millions, we populate new empires, build up new industries, create new customs and fashions. Our names are unknown, but there is scarcely a home in a city or hamlet where some human being is not doing what we demand. So that's typically unsubtle rhetoric, then, and the techniques and the tactics that were used were similarly unsubtle. For example, the phrase, always the bridesmaid, never the bride, was coined by Listerine in an attempt to sell its product. Listerine had originally been marketed as a disinfectant for medical use on the battlefield, and later as the floor cleaner, but this was proving unsuccessful. The new management in the 1920s invented the concept of halitosis, a word coined by one of the makers of Listerine, and preyed on people's fears of being socially isolated. A typical ad ran, quote, Edna's case was really a pathetic one. Like every woman, her primary ambition was to marry. Most of the girls of her set were married, or about to be, yet not one possessed more grace, charm, or loveliness than she. As her birthdays gradually crept towards that tragic 30 mark, marriage seemed further from her life than ever. That's the terrible thing about halitosis. You yourself rarely know when you have it, and your closest friends won't tell you. This campaign turned out to be an incredible success, with sales of Listerine rocketing up by a factor of about 80 after they introduced this halitosis-related advertising. In fact, the practice of regular brushing of teeth using antibacterial mouthwash alongside marketing that you need a glass of orange juice in the morning to top up your vitamin C or if you feel unwell, these things largely came about and became so ingrained because of wildly successful advertising campaigns a hundred years ago. One of the real strengths of Wu's book, although this is really my metaphor here, is how it almost shows you how advertising can operate as a virus. There are core strands running through the DNA of advertising that remain the same throughout the years. For example, this practice of demand engineering is of course why branded clothes are worth anything today. You can draw a direct line between the snake oil salesmen of the early 1800s to supplement salespeople today. There are similar pseudoscientific arguments around how some chemical compound or other is necessary for your health or beneficial for your life, and maybe it just gets relabeled from snake oil to nootropics as the centuries pass. Similarly, the association of celebrities and the glamorous lives of celebrities to sell certain products, this runs unabated from the earliest film star celebrities to the modern day. Similarly, like a virus, there are always the same weaknesses to exploit in people. Just as many viruses can enter our bodies when we breathe in and attack cells in a similar way while these weaknesses remain, so the advertising virus has its own means of attack. Lurid, clickbaity content, evolving from graphic tales of murder and aliens in the 1800s to graphic tales of murder and aliens in 2020, with some quizzes and listicles thrown in. 
But Wu points out that advertising also goes through an endless series of acceptance and refusal, both as societies change and as technologies develop. There are strands of the DNA that persist and mutate and take on new forms in reaction to how people change and respond to the advertising that they're presented with. Wu's thesis is that as people adapt to advertising, they become too immune to it, leading to these cycles of refusing to be taken in by it before it adapts and finds new ways of reaching people. We saw this in the 1800s, when the initial craze over the brightly coloured posters that festooned Paris changed over time. Luminous, brilliant, even blinding, vivid sensations and intense emotions rapidly blunted, only to be revived again. This was the reaction to these bright and attractive scenes, which drew our attention through some of the classic tricks of the trade, giving the impression of movement, bright colours, attractive people, that kind of thing. With enough bombardment with these posters, though, what Wu calls the disenchantment effect sets in. Our ability to ignore things adapts over time, and this decreases the advertiser's power. But as Wu points out, this can be a more active form of disengagement, where audiences, when they feel that they are being overloaded, tricked, or purposefully manipulated, start to ignore advertising. And under these circumstances, an advertising bubble can burst. In Paris, the anti-poster movement lobbied the city to impose restrictions on where the ads could be placed, and one commentator said that, quote, a secret society of masked vigilantes will travel the world, chopping down posters on the stroke of midnight. Which jury would convict us for such an act of citizenship? Similarly, nowadays, the brutal tactics of 1920s Listerine don't work quite so well to engineer demand. Instead, we are subtly presented with lives and lifestyles that we are told to aspire to, and then these are associated with brands, products and services. In the 1950s, when everyone is watching one of a few TV channels, we're watching sitcoms that portray ideal families, American kitsch in the US. The adverts too show us ideal families, They're not marketing the specific virtues of a product anymore, but the virtues of a lifestyle associated with that product. Then the 1960s comes along and you have the counterculture. There are gurus like Timothy Leary who are encouraging everyone to turn on, tune in and drop out. There's this counterculture of radical individualism, the rejection of stuffy traditional moral values and a boring conformist, consumerist, urban, stolid, workaday world. But what happens is that the brands follow the culture into the counterculture. Pepsi markets itself to a new Pepsi generation. It associates itself, bizarrely but effectively, with hippie-like scenes of nature and natural living. Typical adverts featured scenes of people living by rivers, in gardens, children milking cows. You've got a lot to live, and Pepsi's got a lot to give. There's a new way of living, and Pepsi adds the fuel. In 1965, Charlie Brown, the cartoon character, can't afford one of the fashionable artificial Christmas trees of the era, but the sad little sapling that he is able to obtain is seen to embody the true spirit of Christmas. So this is an anti-commercial message that was nevertheless used to great effect to sell things, and further embed in people's minds the connection between Santa Claus and Coca-Cola in red and white, which sponsored the show. 